This is section seven of Old Times on the Mississippi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old Times on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter seven. Leaving port. Racing. Shortening of the river by cutoffs. A steamboat's ghost. Stephen's plan of resumption. It was always the custom for the boats to leave New Orleans between four and five o'clock in the afternoon. From three o'clock onward they would be burning rosin and pitch-pine, the sign of preparation, and so one had the picturesque spectacle of a rank, some two or three miles long, of tall, ascending columns of coal-black smoke, a colonnade which supported a sable roof of the same smoke blended together and spreading abroad over the city. Every outward-bound boat had its flag flying at the jackstaff, and sometimes a duplicate on the verge-staff astern. Two or three miles of mates were commanding and swearing with more than usual emphasis. Countless processions of freight-barrels and boxes were spinning down the slant of the levee and flying aboard the stage-planks. Belated passengers were dodging and skipping among these frantic things, hoping to reach the forecastle companionway alive, but having their doubts about it. Women with reticules and bandboxes were trying to keep up with husbands freighted with carpet-sacks and crying babies, and making a failure of it by losing their heads in the whirl and roar and general distraction. Drays and baggage-vans were clattering hither and thither in a wild hurry, every now and then getting blocked and jammed together, and then during ten seconds one could not see them for the profanity, except vaguely and dimly. Every windlass connected with every fore-hatch, from one end of that long array of steamboats to the other, was keeping up a deafening whiz and whirr, lowering freight into the hold, and the half-naked crews of perspiring negroes that worked them were roaring such songs as, De la sack, de la sack, inspired to unimaginable exaltation by the chaos of turmoil and racket that was driving everybody else mad. By this time the hurricane and boiler-decks of the steamers would be packed and black with passengers. The last bells would begin to clang, all down the line, and then the pow-wow seemed to double. In a moment or two the final warning came, a simultaneous din of Chinese gongs, with the cry, "'All that ain't going, please to get ashore!' And behold, the pow-wow quadrupled. People came swarming ashore overturning excited stragglers that were trying to swarm aboard. One more moment later a long array of stage-planks was being hauled in, each with its customary latest passenger clinging to the end of it with teeth, nails, and everything else, and the customary latest procrastinator making a wild spring shoreward over his head. Now a number of the boats slide backward into the stream, leaving wide gaps in the serried rank of steamers. Citizens crowd the decks of boats that are not to go in order to see the sight. Steamer after steamer straightens herself up, gathers all her strength, and presently comes swinging by under a tremendous head of steam, with flag-waving, black smoke rolling, and her entire crew of firemen and deckhands, usually swarthy negroes, massed together on the forecastle, the best voice in the lot towering from the midst, being mounted on the capstan, waving his hat or a flag, and all roaring a mighty chorus, while the parting cannons boom and the multitudinous spectators swing their hats and huzzah. 
steamer after steamer falls into line and the stately procession goes winging its way up the river in the old times whenever two fast boats started out on a race with a big crowd of people looking on it was inspiring to hear the crews sing especially if the time were nightfall and the forecastle lit up with the red glare of the torch baskets racing was royal fun the public always had an idea that racing was dangerous whereas the very opposite was the case that is after the laws were passed which restrict each boat to just so many pounds of steam to the square inch no engineer was ever sleepy or careless when his heart was in a race he was constantly on the alert trying gauge-cocks and watching things the dangerous place was on slow popular boats where the engineers drowsed around and allowed chips to get into the doctor and shut off the water supply from the boilers in the flush times of steamboating a race between two notoriously fleet steamers was an event of vast importance the date was set for it several weeks in advance and from that time forward the whole mississippi valley was in a state of consuming excitement politics and the weather were dropped and people talked only of the coming race as the time approached the two steamers stripped and got ready every encumbrance that added weight or exposed a resisting surface to wind or water was removed if the boat could possibly do without it the spars and sometimes even their supporting derricks were sent ashore and no means left to set the boat afloat in case she got aground when the eclipse and the a l shotwell ran their great race twenty-two years ago it was said that pains were taken to scrape the gilding off the fanciful device which hung between the eclipse's chimneys and that for one trip the captain left off his kid gloves and had his head shaved but i always doubted these things if the boat was known to make her best speed when drawing five and a half feet forward and five aft she was carefully loaded to that exact figure she wouldn't enter a dose of homeopathic pills on her manifest after that hardly any passengers were taken because they not only add weight but they never will trim boat they always run to the side when there is anything to see whereas a conscientious and experienced steamboatman would stick to the center of the boat and part his hair in the middle with a spirit level no way freight and no way passengers were allowed for the racers would stop only at the largest towns and then it would be only touch and go coal flats and wood flats were contracted for beforehand and these were kept ready to hitch on to the flying steamers at a moment's warning double crews were carried so that all work could be quickly done the chosen date being come and all things in readiness the two great steamers back into the stream and lie there jockeying a moment and apparently watching each other's slightest movement like sentient creatures flags drooping the pent steam shrieking through safety valves the black smoke rolling and tumbling from the chimneys and darkening all the air people people everywhere the shores the housetops the steamboats the ships are packed with them and you know that the borders of the broad mississippi are going to be fringed with humanity thence northward twelve hundred miles to welcome these racers presently tall columns of steam burst from the escape pipes of both steamers two guns boom a good-bye two red-shirted heroes mounted on capstans wave their small flags above the massed crews on the forecastles two plaintive solos linger on the air a few waiting seconds 
two mighty choruses burst forth and here they come brass bands bray hail columbia huzzah after huzzah thunders from the shores and the stately creatures go whistling by like the wind those boats will never halt a moment between new orleans and st louis except for a second or two at large towns or to hitch thirty cordwood boats alongside you should be on board when they take a couple of those wood boats in tow and turn a swarm of men into each by the time you have wiped your glasses and put them on you'll be wondering what has become of that wood two nicely matched steamers will stay in sight of each other day after day they might even stay side by side but for the fact that pilots are not all alike and the smartest pilots will win the race if one of the boats has a lightning pilot whose partner is a trifle his inferior you can tell which one is on watch by noting whether that boat has gained ground or lost some during each four-hour stretch the shrewdest pilot can delay a boat if he has not a fine genius for steering steering is a very high art one must not keep a rudder dragging across a boat's stern if he wants to get up the river fast there is a marvelous difference in boats of course for a long time i was on a boat that was so slow that we used to forget what year it was we left port in but of course this was at rare intervals ferry-boats used to lose valuable trips because their passengers grew old and died waiting for us to get by this was at still rarer intervals i had the documents for these occurrences but through carelessness they have been mislaid this boat the john j roe was so slow that when she finally sunk in madrid bend it was five years before the owners heard of it that was always a confusing fact to me but it is according to the record anyway she was dismally slow still we often had pretty exciting times racing with islands rafts and such things one trip however we did rather well we went to st louis in sixteen days but even at this rattling gait i think we changed watches three times in fort adams reach which is five miles long a reach is a piece of straight river and of course the current drives through such a place in a pretty lively way that trip we went to grand gulf from new orleans in four days three hundred and forty miles the eclipse and shotwell did it in one we were nine days out in the chute of sixty-three seven hundred miles the eclipse and shotwell went there in two days just about a generation ago a boat called the j m white went from new orleans to cairo in three days six hours forty-four minutes twenty-two years ago the eclipse made the same trip in three days three hours and twenty minutes about five years ago the superb r e lee did it in three days and one hour this last is called the fastest trip on record i will try to show that it was not for this reason the distance between new orleans and cairo when the j m white ran it was about eleven hundred and six miles consequently her average speed was a trifle over fourteen miles per hour in the eclipse's day the distance between the two ports had become reduced to one thousand and eighty miles consequently her average speed was a shade under fourteen and three-eighths miles per hour in the r e lee's time the distance had diminished to about one thousand and thirty miles consequently her average was about fourteen and one-eighth miles per hour therefore 
the eclipses was conspicuously the fastest time that has ever been made these dry details are of importance in one particular they give me an opportunity of introducing one of the mississippi's oddest peculiarities that of shortening its length from time to time if you will throw a long pliant apple paring over your shoulder it will pretty fairly shape itself into an average section of the mississippi river that is the nine or ten hundred miles stretching from cairo illinois southward to new orleans the same being wonderfully crooked with a brief straight bit here and there at wide intervals the two hundred mile stretch from cairo northward to st louis is by no means so crooked that being a rocky country which the river cannot cut much the water cuts the alluvial banks of the lower river into deep horseshoe curves so deep indeed that in some places if you were to get ashore at one extremity of the horseshoe and walk across the neck half or three-quarters of a mile you could sit down and rest a couple of hours while your steamer was coming around the long elbow at a speed of ten miles an hour to take you aboard again when the river is rising fast some scoundrel whose plantation is back in the country and therefore of inferior value has only to watch his chance cut a little gutter across the narrow neck of land some dark night and turn the water into it and in a wonderfully short time a miracle has happened to it the whole mississippi has taken possession of that little ditch and placed the countryman's plantation on its bank quadrupling its value and that other party's formerly valuable plantation finds itself away out yonder on a big island the old watercourse around it will soon shoal up boats cannot approach within ten miles of it and down goes its value to a fourth of its former worth watchers are kept on those narrow necks at needful times and if a man happens to be caught cutting a ditch across them the chances are all against his ever having another opportunity to cut a ditch pray observe the effects of this ditching business once there was a neck opposite port hudson louisiana which was only half a mile across in its narrowest place you could walk across there in fifteen minutes but if you made the journey around the cape on a raft you travel thirty-five miles to accomplish the same thing in seventeen twenty two the river darted through that neck deserted its old bed and thus shortened itself thirty-five miles in the same way it shortened itself twenty-five miles at black hawk point in sixteen ninety nine below red river landing raccourci cut-off was made thirty or forty years ago i think this shortened the river twenty-eight miles in our day if you travel by river from the southernmost of these three cut-offs to the northernmost you go only seventy miles to do the same thing a hundred and seventy-six years ago you had to go a hundred and fifty-eight miles a shortening of eighty-eight miles in that trifling distance at some forgotten time in the past cut-offs were made above vidalia louisiana at island ninety-two at island eighty-four and at hales point these shortened the river in the aggregate seventy-seven miles since my own day on the mississippi i am informed that cut-offs have been made at hurricane island at island one hundred at napoleon arkansas at walnut bend and at council bend these shortened the river in the aggregate sixty-seven miles in my own time a cut-off was made at american bend which shortened the river ten miles or more 
therefore the mississippi between cairo and new orleans was twelve hundred and fifteen miles long one hundred and seventy-six years ago it was eleven hundred and eighty after the cut-off of seventeen twenty-two it was one thousand forty after the american bend cut-off some sixteen or seventeen years ago it has lost sixty-seven miles since consequently its length is only nine hundred and seventy-three miles at present now if i wanted to be one of those ponderous scientific people and led on to prove what had occurred in the remote past by what had occurred in a given time in the recent past or what will occur in the far future by what has occurred in the late years what an opportunity is here geology never had such a chance nor such exact data to argue from nor development of species either glacial epochs are great things but they are vague vague please observe in the space of one hundred and seventy-six years the lower mississippi has shortened itself two hundred and forty-two miles that is an average of a trifle over one mile and a third per year therefore any calm person who is not blind or idiotic can see that in the old oolitic silurian period just a million years ago next november the lower Mississippi River was upwards of one million three hundred thousand miles long, and stuck out over the Gulf of Mexico like a fishing-rod. And, by the same token, any person can see that seven hundred and forty-two years from now the lower Mississippi will be only a mile and three-quarters long, and Cairo and New Orleans will have joined their streets together, and be plodding comfortably along under a single mayor and a mutual board of aldermen. There is something fascinating about science. One gets such wholesale returns of conjecture out of such a trifling investment of fact. When the water begins to flow through one of those ditches I have been speaking of, it is time for the people thereabouts to move. The water cleaves the banks away like a knife. By the time the ditch has become twelve or fifteen feet wide, the calamity is as good as accomplished, for no power on earth can stop it now. When the width has reached a hundred yards, the banks begin to peel off in slices half an acre wide. The current flowing around the bend traveled formerly only five miles an hour. Now it is tremendously increased by the shortening of the distance. I was on board the first boat that tried to go through the cut-off at American Bend, but we did not get through. It was toward midnight, and a wild night it was thunder lightning and torrents of rain it was estimated that the current and the cut-off was making about fifteen or twenty miles an hour twelve or thirteen was the best our boat could do even in tolerable slack water therefore perhaps we were foolish to try the cut-off however mr x was ambitious and he kept on trying the eddy running up the bank under the point was about as swift as the current out in the middle so we would go flying up the shore like a lightning express train get on a big head of steam and stand by for a surge when we struck the current that was whirling by the point but all our preparations were useless the instant the current hit us it spun us around like a top the water deluged the forecastle and the boat careened so far over that one could hardly keep his feet the next instant we were away down the river clawing with might and main to keep out of the woods we tried the experiment four times. I stood on the forecastle companionway to see. 
it was astonishing to observe how suddenly the boat would spin around and turn tail the moment she emerged from the eddy and the current struck her nose the sounding concussion and the quivering would have been about the same if she had come full steam against a sandbank under the lightning flashes one could see the plantation cabins and the goodly acres tumble into the river and the crash they made was not a bad effort at thunder once when we spun around we only missed a house about twenty feet that had a light burning in the window and in the same instant that house went overboard nobody could stay on our forecastle the water swept across it in a torrent every time we plunged athwart the current at the end of our fourth effort we brought up in the woods two miles below the cut-off all the country there was overflowing of course a day or two later the cut-off was three-quarters of a mile wide and boats passed up it without much difficulty and so saved ten miles the old recourse cut-off reduced the river's length twenty-eight miles there used to be a tradition connected with it it was said that a boat came along there in the night and went around the enormous elbow in the usual way the pilots not knowing that the cut-off had been made it was a grisly hideous night and all shapes were vague and distorted the old bend had already begun to fill up and the boat got to running away from mysterious reefs and occasionally hitting one the perplexed pilots fell to swearing and finally uttered the entirely unnecessary wish that they might never get out of that place as always happens in such cases that particular prayer was answered and the others neglected so to this day that phantom steamer is still butting around in that deserted river trying to find her way out more than one grave watchman has sworn to me that on drizzly dismal nights he has glanced fearfully down that forgotten river as he passed the head of the island and seen the faint glow of the spectre steamer's lights drifting through the distant gloom and heard the muffled cough of her escape pipes and the plaintive cry of her leadsmen in the absence of further statistics i beg to close this series of old mississippi articles with one more reminiscence of wayward careless ingenious stephen whom i described in a former paper most of the captains and pilots held stephen's note for borrowed sums ranging from two hundred and fifty dollars upward stephen never paid one of these notes but he was very prompt and very zealous about renewing them every twelve months of course there came a time at last when stephen could no longer borrow of his ancient creditors so he was obliged to lie and wait for new men who did not know him such a victim was good-hearted simple-natured young yates i use a fictitious name but the real name began as this one does with a y young yates graduated as a pilot got a berth and when the month was ended and he stepped up to the clerk's office and received his two hundred and fifty dollars in crisp new bills stephen was there his silvery tongue began to wag and in a very little while yates two hundred and fifty dollars had changed hands the fact was soon known at pilot headquarters and the amusement and satisfaction of the old creditors were large and generous but innocent yates never suspected that stephen's promise to pay promptly at the end of the week was a worthless one yates called for his money at the stipulated time stephen sweetened him up and put him off a week he called then according to agreement and came away sugar-coated again but suffering under another postponement so the thing went on 
yates haunted stephen week after week to no purpose and at last gave it up and then straightway stephen began to haunt yates wherever yates appeared there was the inevitable stephen and not only there but beaming with affection and gushing with apologies for not being able to pay by and by whenever poor yates saw him coming he would turn and fly and drag his company with him if he had company but it was of no use his debtor would run him down and corner him panting and red-faced stephen would come with outstretched hands and eager eyes invade the conversation shake both of yates arms loose in their sockets and begin my what a race i've had i saw you didn't see me and so i clapped on all steam for fear i'd miss you entirely and here you are there just stand so and let me look at you just the same old noble countenance to yates friend just look at him look at him ain't it just good to look at him ain't it now ain't he just a picture some call him a picture i call him a panorama that's what he is an entire panorama and now i'm reminded how i do wish i could have seen you an hour earlier for twenty-four hours i've been saving up that two hundred and fifty dollars for you been looking for you everywhere i waited at the planters from six yesterday evening till two o'clock this morning without rest or food my wife says where have you been all night i said this debt lies heavy on my mind she says in all my days i never saw a man take a debt to heart the way you do i said it's my nature how can i change it she says well do go to bed and get some rest i said not till that poor noble young man has got his money so i set up all night and this morning out i shot and the first man i struck told me you had shipped on the grand turk and gone to new orleans well sir i had to lean up against a building and cry so help me goodness i couldn't help it the man that owned the place came out cleaning up with a rag and said he didn't like to have people crying against his building and then it seemed to me that the whole world had turned against me and it wasn't any use to live any more and coming along an hour ago suffering no man knows what agony i met jim wilson and paid him the two hundred and fifty dollars on account and to think that here you are now and i haven't got a cent but as sure as i am standing here on this ground on this particular brick there i've scratched a mark on the brick to remember it by i'll borrow that money and pay it over to you at twelve o'clock sharp to-morrow now stand so let me look at you just once more and so on yates life became a burden to him he could not escape his debtor and his debtor's awful suffering on account of not being able to pay he dreaded to show himself in the street lest he should find stephen lying in wait for him at the corner bogart's billiard saloon was a great resort for pilots in those days they met there about as much to exchange river news as to play one morning yates was there stephen was there too but kept out of sight but by and by when about all the pilots had arrived who were in town stephen suddenly appeared in the midst and rushed for yates as for a long-lost brother oh i am so glad to see you oh my soul the sight of you is such a comfort to my eyes gentlemen i owe all of you money among you i owe probable forty thousand dollars i want to pay it i intend to pay it every last cent of it you all know without my telling you what sorrow it has cost me to remain so long under such deep obligations to such patient and generous friends but the sharpest pang i suffer by far the sharpest is from the debt i owe to this noble young man here 
and i have come to this place this morning especially to make the announcement that i have at last found a method whereby i can pay off all my debts and most especially i wanted him to be here when i announced it yes my faithful friend my benefactor i found the method to pay off all my debts and you'll get your money hope dawned in yates eye then stephen beaming benignantly and placing his hand upon yates head added i am going to pay them off in alphabetical order then he turned and disappeared the full significance of stephen's method did not dawn upon the perplexed and musing crowd for some two minutes then yates murmured with a sigh well the wise stand a gaudy chance he won't get any farther than the seas in this world and i reckon that after a good deal of eternity has wasted away in the next one i'll still be referred to up there as that poor ragged pilot that came here from st louis in the early days End of chapter seven